This is the Philly Soccer Show. I'm KOW News Radio's Greg Orlandini with Matt DeGeorge from the Delaware County Times. We remember Philadelphia and American soccer legend Walter Barr with attorney and soccer historian Steve Holroyd. In the studio this week is our friend, our legal consultant, Mr. Steve Holroyd, not only the legal consultant, but historian of the beautiful game here in Philadelphia and uh, elsewhere, and Matt DeGeorge still with us from the Delco Times, sitting in the co-host chair as Mike uh, recovers, I think, now. Or, from... or might be trying to plot faking his own death so that he can go back to France, <laughs> to France and live and... permanently. We don't have evidence of that, no, but, but, but it's a possibility. This is, this is speculation at this point, but it is possible. Um, so we're going to do a little differently this week, and unfortunately, earlier this week we heard of the passing of... Uh, Kind of one of the the pillars, one of the patriarchs of the sport in Philadelphia, Walter Barr, whose influence is uh, wide, based in 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 Philadelphia soccer and in American soccer. So, Steve, uh, let's talk about Walter Barr. Yeah, absolutely, guys. How are you? It's good to be back. Um, yeah, Walter Barr is everything you just described. He uh, an absolute titan in Philadelphia soccer. Um, just as just as much of a colossus uh, on, on the American soccer scene, and but one of those guys who, for all we're talking about him, isn't better remembered because he had the misfortune of playing in uh, the rather moribund ethnic era of professional soccer. If he played twenty five years earlier, we'd be talking about him alongside Billy Gonzalez and Burke Patnati and Davey Brown, all those uh, great American players of that era. If he played twenty five years later, we'd be talking about him like he's Ricky Davis or Bob Rigby or Bobby Smith. Um, uh, just his bad luck that he, he played in that 1945 to 1960 uh, for him era where um, uh, professional soccer was barely professional and he was playing really well while no one was looking. But that does not diminish uh, his, his influence. He was a great player um, uh, you know, by many accounts, the best player of that 1950s era, uh, a leader on the 1950 World Cup team that uh, defeated England uh, in what's still considered the sport's greatest upset. Indeed, he had the assist on the lone goal that was scored in that game. But he was his his influence wasn't just as a player; he was a great coach, and he also happened to sire uh, three uh, three kids who also had professional soccer careers. Two of them went on to have uh, NFL kicking careers. Um, he was just a, a great man, again, a titan in the area, and, and his loss is, uh, is deeply felt. Steve, I wonder if you could take us back to the aftermath of that 1950 World Cup. And obviously Walter Barr played such a huge role in that. But what was kind of the effect of that win over England? We always talk about the, the World Cup being a, a force multiplier and how the game grows. But what was the kind of reaction here back in the States to that that run that that team made sadly there was absolutely no reaction at all um uh, no one went to cover the game uh rather famously dent mix uh, dent mcskimming of uh, the st louis post dispatch he paid his own way to go down he was the only one reporting on the event um it, it, it as opposed to we talked today about world cup bumps you know after the women's world cup the women's pro league at the time had a slight bump um you know after 2002 mls had a bit of a bump after the great u.s run no such thing. These guys went home, went back to their day jobs, continued playing on weekends on, on uh, dusty high school fields, 
um, uh, many times laboring for teams, you know, with ethnic nicknames, and and it didn't have, unfortunately it had zero impact, literally zero impact on the growth of the game in this country. And I guess for Barr, that meant that when he was playing in the in the fifties and um, back in that day, he was still holding down a, a day job, right? That was still he was he was still teaching at Frankfurt High at at that time, correct? That's, that's absolutely correct. He had his day job. He played on weekends. He got his fifty dollars a game or whatever it was. Um, Played with the Philadelphia Nationals for a number of years. When that team folded, he went to Brookhatton. Uh, not you know because the commute to New York was a bit of a hassle. He came back, played with York Truckers, um, and was a very he was a great player in the American Soccer League. Uh, one thing I, I noted to people, you know, the MVP award. We all know about MVPs, and, and more often than not, it, they always go to great players. But they tend to go to great players who also had career years. Mm-hmm. Um, Barr was the runner-up, I think, about six years in a row. It seemed, you know, from like 46 to 52. He was he was the runner-up for the American Soccer League MVP award, and that's just a testament to his consistent greatness. Other people had those careers and would get the trophy and move on. He was in the, he was in the discussion each and every year for, you know, a good six-year run. Um, his teams tended to do well. Uh, the, the, uh, the Nationals won a number of ASL titles. They had a couple Lewis Cup which was the League Cup uh, that they had at the time, something MLS hasn't adopted yet, but you know the equivalent of the League Cups you hear about in other countries. Uh, they were finalists and winners a few years, and Open Cup. Um, uh, you know he, uh, he 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 was just he was just a consistently great player, um, but who was influencing the game not only on the field but as a coach. As you say, he coached at Frankfurt. He went on to coach at Temple. Went on to coach at Penn State. Uh, had good runs in, in each uh, each time. Coached briefly professionally with the with the. Uh, the second version of the Philadelphia Spartans in the American Soccer League in '69 and '70, uh, two second place finishes. I mean, he was just—he was consistently good at what he chose to do in this game. And, and, and oh. then he has the ties to the because it was two of his sons that played for the Adams eventually. Uh, two sons played for the Adams. His first son Casey uh, played with the 1973 champions. Uh, had limited duty because of his Navy commitments. He was in the Navy. Also, was uh, briefly with the Philadelphia Fever their first year. Uh, Chris played with the Adams in 1975, winning the Rookie of the Year award. Uh, and then Matt, who played in the NASL in 78 with the infamous Caribou of Colorado, those of the fringed uh, kits. <laughs> and then also had a couple good years with the Pennsylvania Stoners in the American Soccer League. And, of course, Chris and Matt went on to have, have careers in the NFL kicking, and I think both were on Super Bowl yeah. teams. Yeah, four Super Bowl rings between them. That's um, uh, yeah, pretty impressive. Yeah. So what, what was the – you touched on it a bit, but – what was the U.S. Soccer Federation like at this point? Because we, what we know of it now, it's this big, almost corporate entity that that you know controls the sport, and, it, and you know there's millions of dollars being passed through it, millions and millions of dollars, and all of that. Obviously, nowhere close to that. But what was what was the, the structure of the U.S. Soccer and the Federation at this point? Uh, the USSF, which I guess at the time was the USS. FA, you know, Soccer Football Association, because they had to, you know, they, they, they weren't football here in America. It was, uh, they, they had the role of being the um, steward of the game in the United States, but uh, it was not a role. It was, it, I won't say it wasn't taken seriously, but it just wasn't, for want of a better way to characterize it, big business. Uh, they ran the Open Cup, and they may, and, and that's, that was basically their primary source of revenue. And it wasn't much because it wasn't that big an event. I mean, they weren't they weren't drawing fifty thousand a game. Uh, they had their player registration fees and whatnot, but 
they were there, you know, barely. Uh, the American Soccer League was the was the official professional league on the Eastern Seaboard, and of course they would be able to because of that they would have visiting teams come Liverpool, what at Manchester United, and big money would come in that way. But there was no professional staff. I think the, at the time there was one paid employee, uh, full time employee on the entire USSF staff. And, again, a phrase I keep going back to for that era, moribund. I mean, uh, they weren't really interested in growing the game. They were happy to take what came. Uh, the big, quote, professional slash semi-professional leagues, the American Soccer League, the National Soccer League in Chicago, they were, again, cl- uh, leagues of, of ethnic social clubs sponsoring teams, uh, playing for ethnic pride, not playing for the growth of the game. Um, and, and, and so it was not an era where you were looking for growth. And, indeed, you know, in the, like in, this, in the case of the American Soccer League, when there was sudden interest in Major League Soccer late 1966, 1967, and all these baseball and football magnates were coming in to form leagues, the ASL was like, yeah, sure, come on in. It, it never crossed their minds that, hey, there might be money to be made here. We should stake our claim. They just didn't care. Mm-hmm. It, just, it wasn't that era. It, 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 it wasn't, you know, growing the game really just wasn't a goal uh, in, in that in that, frankly, that entire period after the end of the first American Soccer League in 1933 until the arrival, you know, you know, 51, 50 years ago of the North American Soccer League, it just wasn't on the radar screen. I wonder how much of that in the in the aftermath, and this maybe is is diverting a little bit from Walter Barr, but uh, how much of that do you think is the post-World War II kind of consolidation of this new American identity? And obviously baseball is the unquestioned number one sport at this time and football is growing and things like that. Um, but you have these ethnic enclaves that are succeeding, but these are also, you know, mainly European enclaves and, you know, Europe, I guess football, soccer is still a European sport. I wonder how much that played into it and how much that impinges on the attention and prosperity that someone like Walter Barr and his contemporaries were able to find. Uh, I would agree. I think, and I think it hits on both ends. I mean, you have a sport that the public at large is looking at as foreign. You have a sport that... Uh, at least with certain classes of immigrants, was being deliberately ignored because they wanted to Americanize. So, so yeah, you have from from the from the perspective of the casual fan, you have that view of oh yes, that's the immigrants' game. But even among the clubs themselves, you had you, you know a lot of these clubs. They were um, you know by the 1940s. You're not talking about Carney Scots and Irish. It's it's Italian. It's uh, it's it's Greek. It's you know the Eastern European who who uh, again, both sides share some blame. Americans didn't want them. Mm-hmm. You know, they say, "Oh God, the Eastern Europeans are here now." They, they, you know, the mainstream America didn't really want them, and they weren't that eager to assimilate. They're like, "Fine, if that's the way you want to be, here we are. We're Polish, we're we're Greek, whatever, and these are our clubs, and we're proud of these clubs." So, yeah, I think from both sides, it, it resulted in it. You had Americans playing. I mean, the Philadelphia Nationals were a uh, everyone on that team except one was American-born and bred playing soccer, playing top-quality soccer, winning league championships, winning national championships, and no one was paying attention. They were seen as the, uh, you know, as just the, 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 like the punk rockers of the era, the kids just wanting to be different. Right, right. Yeah, and I guess, I guess you see that in Philly with the United German-Hungarians, that they have their own enclave. And I guess in the latter days of the Philadelphia Ukrainians, they brought in other people of other nationalities. I remember talking to guys like, um, I guess Alex Eli was on that team, and he's Brazilian, and they brought in South Americans and stuff like that. But I guess that you know that's how it manifested here, right? Not even in the latter days. I mean, these clubs—they were all about winning. So for all the ethnic pride angle, they didn't care who you were as long as you could play. 
because again, when the title was won, it was Ukrainian nationals, mm-hmm. and so it was you know it was it was a great day for those of Ukrainian heritage. Um, but yeah, absolutely, and it's that's what you had. So you you talked about Walter playing kind of in this in between era where kind of the earlier heyday of American soccer, like with Bobby Gonzalez and all that in the 30s, 40s, faded, and you're still 20-some years away from NASL and Pele and kind of the rise of all that. Uh, and, and just kind of when he had passed and kind of reading about him and his sons, if, if his sons played later, would they have different opportunities, Chris and Matt and uh, Casey, uh, than they did then? Obviously, they, you know, they went to the NFL for greener pastures, and the sport hadn't really coalesced yet. But it, it just it, it struck me that you had this guy who was such a you know a, a big part of the sport, and his sons play start out in soccer, but end up in the NFL. So, I mean, so they were almost in an in between spot as well. It felt it seems like yeah. In fact, it, it, it's funny you mention that because one of the things I learned in the wake of Mister Barr's passing, I didn't realize is that. Chris, Chris's commitment to soccer was such that he kept his amateur status in soccer and, in fact, was a player, indeed a star, for the German, um, the German-Hungarians who, who were the last, if, if I'm not mistaken, were the last Philadelphia team to compete for an Open Cup title until the Union came. He, he played for that team in 1977 along with his brother Casey, mm-hmm. which led, just parenthetically, led to some brief confusion because Casey's real name is Walter and he showed up on the roster as Walter Barr. So some people were saying, oh, my God, 50-year-old Walt Barr playing in this <laughs> final. But, um, but, but yeah, yeah, these are kids. These are two people that would have preferred playing soccer, I think, for lots of different mm-hmm. reasons. I mean, even though they were only kickers. I mean, football's a rough sport. Um, and even as the NASL was growing, they were just, the money wasn't there for Americans. Mm-hmm. Right? Familiar theme. It's not much different than today, I guess, if you want to criticize MLS. But these kids... They stayed with it. I mean, Matt played a couple of years, even in the ASL. I mean, the children's love for soccer was genuine. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was clearly something they got from their father. And, um, yeah, it begs the question, if they hung on just a few more years, even within, even in the NASL, would Chris have been the type of player that would have been looking, even indoor? I mean, where indoor players were getting 100, even Americans were getting $100,000-a-year contracts, would have been harder for him to say, yeah, I'm going to turn down the NFL. I'll I'll make just as much money here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they were just ahead of the curve as well. Right, right. Yeah. It's, it's funny you mentioned that because I was reading something yesterday about uh, one of the U.S. youth teams. I think it was maybe like the 09 under-17s or under-20s maybe. Um, it was an MLSsoccer.com article, and they mentioned Josh Lambeau, who's now a kicker, as the most successful guy uh, from that class, and certainly in earnings as well as his – you know, I'm sure his earning his earnings potential as well as his accomplishments. Um, but actually, uh, you know, Jim Curtin today at his press conference started with a really um, kind of extended comment on Walter Barr and what he's meant. And I don't think Curtin knew him or met him, but indirectly he knew of him through so many different people. Uh, and the sense that I've gotten in talking with other people in the wake of Walter Barr's passing is that he's kind of this central hub for the Philadelphia soccer scene and. Nobody's really more than, you know, two or three degrees separated from him. It's always someone that he coached, coached someone else who now coaches you. And Curtin alluded to that with um, his coach at Villanova, was a guy that uh, that worked with Walter Barr and um, who Chris Albright's father worked with. And there, there you have that connection to the current union. Is that kind of the way that you saw it? And I don't know if this is something when you were playing that even then that it was probably more profound back then. No, absolutely. I mean, Mr. Barr... 
uh, the six degrees of separation, even right, you probably go three. It's absolutely correct. I mean, even when he moved out at State College when he was coaching Penn State, he was a lighthouse legend. He was a Philadelphia legend. He remains, without question, the the, the greatest Philadelphia-born player. Even with well, you know, Bob Rigby was Philadelphia area, but even with all the others that have come after, and yeah, and yeah, he was because because he loved the game and he stayed in touch and and he was so approachable. You know, he he was very humble about it as well. I mean, one of the things you saw. Uh, a lot of in the wake of his passing were, were people, because they didn't realize it at the time, they, they said, this is a man who every every year when the coaches' convention was in Philadelphia, he was there as, I think one phrase, one description was, he was there like a Walmart reader. He was like, <laughs> you know, the greatest American player of an entire generation, and he was happy to show up, shake hands, and, and you know, greet, the, uh, greet folks as they came to the convention center. Someone else had mentioned... Heck, it might have been you, man. I mean, someone else had mentioned they, they picked up the phone one day. They, they, they gave him a call. They heard about him. He took the call, gave him three hours of his time. Uh, not like, oh, don't bother me. Go through my agent. No, just completely humble, a humble man who loved the game and would do whatever it took to grow the game. And, uh, and, and yes, he touched in this area, coaches, players. Everyone knew Walter Barr. Everyone knew of Walter Barr. And, uh, and he, as I started out with, he was a titan. I mean, that, that phrase gets thrown around, but in his case, especially when it comes to Philadelphia soccer, it was it was well-deserved. I wonder if, if we're going to bring it back to the present now. This weekend, the Union are honoring Sebastian Latou mm-hmm. as the first member of the Ring of Honor. Uh, there was a couple instances in the past where they had brought back Walter Barr, I believe, before one of the Open Cup finals. Yeah, I think another... at, at the first game. Yeah, yeah, yeah he the, was at the, there. The inaugural game against um, the D.C., yeah. I would think that at some point, sooner rather than later, inducting Walter Barr into whatever ring of honor kind of setup the Union are going to have would be something that would be uh, prudent for the club. I know his obviously his time predated the Union mm-hmm. for a long time, and there wasn't a direct involvement. Um but I, I think that would be kind of an interesting step. I don't know what your thoughts are, but I think it would be an interesting nod to history in this city. Um, I agree. He would certainly be deserving. Um, from the union's point of view, that probably opens up uh, a can of worms because, again, there's so much soccer history, professional soccer history in this city that that there might, and where the union itself isn't exactly making any real legends, at least. I mean, they've only been around nine years, but still um, – it may get tough. I mean, okay, well, now it's Walt Barr. When when is it Bobby Smith? Uh, but but that that having been said, I think Mr. Barr is such a transcendent figure mm-hmm. that no one would complain that if in the, on the foot off a Union Ring of Honor, the one outlier, the one non directly Union connected person, uh, you know, is 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 Mr. Barr. It's sort of like the way Dave Zinkoff's microphone mm-hmm. hangs yeah. Yeah, for Sixers game. I think it's it's. And it's 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 Mr. Barr is even more deserving, and that's not a discredit to Dave Zinkoff because he was a player and mm-hmm. a coach and someone who made the game. His is uh, his shirt is hanging in the club. Mm-hmm. If you go up there, I mean they have uh, several jerseys, and Mr. Barr's is one of them. So adding him to the Ring of Honor, I think, would be entirely appropriate. And and no one should complain that okay, well, what about so no. This is Walt Barr. Right, right. Yeah. And if nothing yeah. else, if it, if it forces fans that are there to pull out their phones and look mm-hmm. up who Walter Barr right. is, then I think that's a that would be a net positive for the Especially soccer Especially since I've now of... corrected his Wikipedia entry, which was <laughs> shockingly bad. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Bless I you. saw that and directed somebody to that. I was like, it, someone had asked me a question about some specifics, and I was like, go look at Steve's Twitter and maybe look at the Wikipedia. I don't know if the edits have been approved, but definitely look at his Twitter. Um, let's talk about him as a coach. He was uh, a... Um, City coach with with Frankfurt, 
and made it to the collegiate level, to the high level in the collegiate level, um, and just had such tremendous success. Again, it's it's one of those things, Walter Barr, he's part of the tapestry, but then you start kind of digging in and you realize just success followed this man. And the success he had at Penn State is 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 incredible. Can you talk kind of his influence from the coaching uh standpoint? Yeah, as a coach, he um he he believed in good soccer. You know, he uh, one of the advantages of playing in the American Soccer League was you know, he he was exposed to lots of different styles. It wasn't like he just only played in the Lighthouse Club in a very unique Kensington style of play. And 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 he applied that everywhere he went and with success. He knew how to take the the most attractive elements of other styles of play and incorporate it into the highly athletic American style of play. Uh, in fact, just today, apropos of nothing, I was doing some research on that second version of the Philadelphia Spartans, which uh, with which Walt was coaching in '69, brand new team, and they got off to a bad start. I think they they were o five and one through their first six games, and then they rallied and wound up finishing in second place uh, because. You know, Barr got these guys to buy into his system, and and this was his first professional, co- his, his only professional coaching job. But before he was hired at college, so he was coaching in high school. But you know, high school you can only you get what you get. Yeah. Here he's got his players; they can have some sort of pick, and that and that and the success there is what, pro- which is what got him the Temple job, and he had great success at Temple. Um, always running up against the Philadelphia textile teams, but that was no shame. Textile was a great program, and then of course going to Penn State. And again, whether it was his children, whether it was Jim uh, Stamitis, who was, I think, in 78, the number one overall pick with San Diego, and he was developing really good players, um, it was because he was a student of the game. He wasn't just an athlete who played soccer, which was a common thing in that era. He had lots of guys who, they were just athletes going around kicking a ball because, you know, for whatever reason, in the fall, they weren't allowed to play football, whatever. No, Walt Barr was a soccer player. He wasn't a it was an athlete who played soccer. He was a soccer player and a student of the game, and 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 he was able to, um, not to get too deep in the weeds, but remember when he was coaching, St. Louis was considered the epicenter of college soccer, and everyone emulated St. Louis soccer. St. Louis soccer was was a glorified version of hot potato. I mean, it was it was you get you got rid of the ball as quickly as possible. The really the, the, the possession was like hot potato in a sense. Make the other team chase the ball. You yourself never held the ball. And it was something unique to St. Louis because even in their semi-pro leagues, they were playing 30-minute halves instead of 45s. They had free substitution with other people. So it was it lent itself to a running game and that everyone else tried to emulate because, hey, St. Louis is winning titles with it. It must be the way to go. They were still playing a 2-3-5. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember I started playing soccer in 1973. We played a 2-3-5. The rest of the world abandoned that about 40 years earlier, but I guess it was still being used in the youth uh, soccer in, in southern New Jersey because someone grabbed a book and saw, hey, that's what St. Louis is doing. Barr got away from that. He said, no, no, it's, uh, soccer's a worldwide game. There's lots of different ways to play it. There's a smarter way to play it. And and his success, again, an American coach at the college level, having success bucking what everyone else thought was successful, led other people to copy from him. And, and so, you know, so when Al Miller's at Hartwick, they were kind of contemporaries, but nevertheless, Al Miller's a Hartwick and say, hey, Walt Barr's having success at Temple doing it this way. Maybe I can do it this way. You know, and, and, and other coaches followed, American coaches who, were, who weren't afraid of following an American as opposed to feeling like they had to copy off of college coaches. Yeah, the ripple effect that Walt had in this game in this country is just, you, you can't understate it. You can't overstate it, I mean. 
it's it's interesting that you had a, a man like this and juxtapose with what you explained about what the soccer federation was at that time that that it was kind of a we'll just keep treading water and making money off of different things and just kind of survive that way where you had a guy like this who was a student of the game great player turned into a great coach and it's just just kind of looking at kind of the length and breadth of this he seems in a way underutilized by the sport in a way on that level not really on the collegiate or in philadelphia but higher up no absolutely and i think and, that, and blame there can be laid at the feet of the USSF, which itself was its own little club. And uh, not that that's changed much if you listen to some people. But, yeah, there's no need to have – we don't need actual coaches and players, and we've got this covered because, you know, because that's what we do. The North American Soccer League, you know, Shep Messing infamously referred to an English mafia running that league. You know, Paul Gardner was always complaining about it. It was true. So, you know, there's no need – we're not going to invite Walt Barr in. Well, who needs Walt Barr? We can go and get – Renus Mickles, not that that's a bad thing, but then we'll go get a foreign coach, have him come over here. Why hire from the college ranks? Uh, um, yeah, absolutely, underutilized. Because, again, he was an American. I mean, there was, mm-hmm. there was no, um, you know, being the greatest American soccer player, even in this country, was the equivalent of, you know, being the greatest so- uh, second baseman from Australia. You just weren't <laughs> going to get any kind of respect, even in your own country. And that's, that's part of the lasting tragedy. Uh, he was, again, totally wrong era. You know, yeah. twenty five years earlier, twenty five years later, would be it'd be you know his loss would be even more deeply felt mm-hmm. because he would just he would have been that kind of a influential figure. He was really in the shadows, but doing great work nevertheless that we still feel today. It is great that he got to see the sport where it is now. I mean, we you know we all three of us have sat here and complained about it, but it, we're you know there were the bad old days a lot of times. I mean, I especially you know. A little younger than you, Steve. Our battle days to me are kind of the, the 80s when there was no real league and it was before they made the World Cup and it was no light at, at the end of the tunnel. The sport was just kind of what it was. And then they make the World Cup and everything kind of kickstarted from there. And then they hosted and MLS comes. And, and, and I don't think people where we do wring our hands and pull our hair out and complain that we're really talking about 30 years where – where we the U.S. soccer has been like a concentrated force to push and grow and make the game what it is right now, and just when you when you lose a guy like Walter Barr and you look at kind of the landscape of American soccer, you realize kind of where we are, I guess, and it gives you such perspective. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't I don't want to you know do the the dog whistle here, but you know one of the big debates on on the on the soccer social media has to do with you know. Uh, whether promotion or relegation will make the sport even bigger and everything else. And, and yeah, and, it, and it's an argument largely advanced by people who are brand new to the game, who came when MLS was up and running and to say, oh, it could be better. Well, yeah, of course it could be better. But, right, one would wonder if you ask someone like a Walt Barr, what do you think? He was absolutely thrilled right. with the way it had grown because right. he remembered what it was like playing on dusty high school fields at $50 a game. I mean, now you could do it as a full-time job. We're, we're qualifying for the World Cup. When we don't qualify, it's considered a crushing disappointment as opposed to business as usual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's a reminder of not only how far we've come, but how we wouldn't be where we were today if it wasn't for people like him willing to keep beating the drum for what he thought was a wonderful game, even if lots of other people thought it was the immigrants' game, mm-hmm. even if lots of people thought it was you know a sissy game. You remember, you know, growing up in no, the eighties, no. it, it was oh shorts, foreigners, whatever. Um, 
And he never he he could have played baseball. He was recruited by the St. Louis Cardinals. Interestingly, he, like a lot of players that year, he played more than just one sport, and he was good at more than just one sport. And he hitched his cart to soccer because that was his true love, mm-hmm. and because of the, because of the fact he stuck with that, we're all better for it. Yeah. One uh, thing one thing that I find interesting that you mentioned is that back then the the um, I guess the the jump between a college coach and a pro coach seemed to be so big for someone like Walter Barr, and now we're in this age of MLS where you know, every once in a while, if a job comes o- open, Sasha Shirovsky's name is is floated, and it's sometimes dismissed out of hand because the gap is this big. And it's interesting to see how the perception of it was then that it was too big, and now we've kind of moved to a place where that jump, you know, Caleb Porter aside, that jump is pretty uh, unlikely, I think, now as we move forward. And I think it's for different reasons now that there's an abundance of players who you know, have have coached in, you know, some lower levels of Europe, have coached in the U.S., have gotten their badges and their professional system. It's more codified now. I find that interesting to see how that has, how that gap has maybe stayed the same. And I think it's instructive to see why the gap itself is the same, but the reasons for it are, are maybe different 30, 40 years onward. Yeah, I, 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 I do think college soccer itself deserves a fair amount of the blame for that because they insist on playing what, what's a different game? It was much more different back in the seventies. Uh, they've, they, you know, they've improved it a little bit without the mass free substitution and things like that. But I think college soccer, for all the improvements it's made over just the last five years alone, I mean, it's getting to be a much better game and, and much more um, looking much more like the pro game. But yeah, I think between the thought that you know, oh, if you're coaching college, it's because you're a teacher and you took the job when no one else wanted the job, as opposed to a licensed. Someone who went to a course somewhere, I think your point's well taken that that stigma is still there. Right. But in in Walt's era, um, notwithstanding, I mean, Al Miller got the job because the Adams just did things differently. That's a whole other story. Um, Dan Wood, uh, I think, made the leap. But otherwise, right, you didn't see that because oh, they're Americans, they're teachers, they don't know. And that really hasn't changed much. Um, so we'll shift gears a little bit. We're the Union are in the, uh, we'll talk a little bit about. U.S. Open Cup, and I have Steve here. Uh, it's good to get some, again, historical perspective on the Cup. The Union are going to the quarterfinal. They beat uh, Red Bull to get there. They also beat uh, Richmond in, the, in their opening round, the fourth round, which was uh, the Union's opening round. Um, so it's good to kind of refresh this, kind of what the Open Cup. And for a long time, that was the really only national competition, right, for for for. Huge stretches in in U.S. soccer. Oh yeah, without a doubt. I mean, yeah. even even when even during the, um, um, it was a big competition when the first American Soccer League was riding high. Indeed, uh, the competition between the two was what caused the soccer war, which some people may have heard about in you know twenty eight twenty nine. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It was the only it was the only national competition. Open Cup, as the term implies, professional amateur. It was open to everybody. There was an amateur cup. But that didn't get as much publicity. The, the Open Cup was the national championship. Indeed, in a lot of uh, the USSF guides of the era, you know, 50s through the 60s, is referred to as the national championship. Um, and and uh, But again, it's another, I think the competition itself suffered because you can look from, say, 1950 to about 1995, and the winners were all Los Angeles, Maccabi, New York Greeks, Something German, something Paul. Again, it, it, it was it, all it did was highlight the ethnicity 
of the sport. But that's not to take away from the teams that were playing in it. Better players in the country, best soccer teams in the country, and um, and, and you know, uh, Cypriot. This is something he offers. Um, but kind of go dig back into some of those old Philadelphia German Hungarians, and they offer kind of such history, um, which I th- personally I think is pretty cool. And I obviously don't. I haven't looked into this to the degree that Steve has, but uh, the amount of history that's there is really interesting. And it's kind of these dark ages. Mm-hmm. Um, and to bring it back May, in uh, Jim Curtin's press conference is that they haven't lost in the run of play in this conference since 19. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've lost in extra time or they haven't lost 90 minutes. I should say lost in uh, multi kicks, I think three years, four years, four of those years, but they haven't been ousted in 90 minutes. So it, it's, uh, it's interesting that for all of the kind of touch points that the you want to hit about Philadelphia is a soccer city and we embrace this culture and all that, sometimes they certainly whiff on those. <laughs> but in this instance of taking this competition seriously, at least under Jim Curtin and I guess John Hackworth before that to a slightly lesser degree, but certainly mm-hmm. with Curtin, that is an area where they absolutely have taken this competition seriously. They've never really gone out and fielded just a, you know, they've never done what Bruce Arena has done, which is, right. you know, if you like sign guys off the streets to just go play in the <laughs> open cup, they, they've really given their all to this tournament. And I see no reason to indicate why they wouldn't again this year, because it is a, you know, they're going to have a home game the next round uh, in the quarterfinals. Then all of a sudden you're in the semis. And, you know, if you can win that game against either uh, a, the last place team in the East in DC United or a team that just fired its coach in Orlando city, then all of a sudden you're in the semifinals. And, you know, even the worst teams in the world can win two games mm-hmm. in a row uh, we need look no further than what was that uh, DC United team in 20, was that 14, 13? Yeah, that was they, the worst yeah, the MLS team, team in history. They threw everything they had into and the cup. And ended up winning that Open Cup. Yeah. So, you know, I find that an interesting kind of historical tie-in that the, that the yeah. Union are maybe inadvertently honoring the history of Philadelphia, but they are doing it. Yeah, I, I think it's a great competition, and I really, really got, kind of fell in love with it, the opportunity when I was helping out Philly soccer page, went covering some uh, Ocean City Nor'easter games, and they were, and you, you kind of go there in the early rounds, and there's this whole other kind of culture with it in the early rounds. And there's a guy monitoring Twitter and kind of shouting, oh, this club beat that club, and all these kind of little minnow clubs. But, you know, th- this is what they're, this is kind of their bread and butter. It's an opportunity to get a good paycheck. This is an opportunity to, you know, in case of Ocean City, they rode all the way to playing at, at Talon, at PPL at mm-hmm. that point. But, yeah, so and I, if I, I recall that the one year probably should have beaten, probably should have beaten the Union that year because I think that was thirteen maybe. Yeah, that the Union played absolutely terrible and I think had to be rescued by. It was either extra time or I feel like it was a Michael Lahoud goal. It was, it was really some, late. It was something it was, I that was I got to the end regulation, of. The, but yeah, they yeah, were, I got to the end of that game, sir, and was like, I, this, I just, they should have lost my, this game. My impression, uh, just being the two locker rooms that night. That the Ocean City locker room was in a lot better mood than the Union locker room, despite despite losing. And it's just a great sport. And go off on a slight rant. My hope for one day, and missing the World Cup kind of has changed priorities a lot with U.S. soccer. But that they have a, a, an Open Cup czar one day that whose job in USSF is wakes up every day and works to promote and turn the and show the proper respect that this competition have because like you said, it was the best American competition for years and it was the only uh, American competition for years and has such a rich history and, and it's, it's a chicken and the egg thing. They can't get 
a lot of TV for it because there's no sponsorship. There's no sponsorship, but there's no TV. So I get there's that chicken and the egg cycle you're on trying to promote this thing. And But it would just, I think it would be nice. And I think it would be great for the sport to have just like one guy who is the Open Cup czar, who works to promote it, works to get sponsorship for it, who works to kind of streamline it get and, the t- and modernize it. Get the TV it, deals. Get and the TV deals yeah. and, or streaming or however you want to do mm-hmm. it. But where it, there's access for the fan. I wonder how, how was that governance in the past? Because, I mean, as I was, I think I recall with the Ukrainians going back and researching, a lot of times their some of their bigger competitions were their amateur cups and certain, some of those other cups. And I, I, was, was there a Lewis Cup? Is that is well? The Lewis Cup was the League Cup. Yeah, okay. there was the three cups that the Ukrainians would have been competing for. There would be the Open Cup, mm-hmm. uh, which we've been talking about. The ASL had a League Cup. Mm-hmm. which actually stemmed from the original American Soccer League called the Lewis Cup, which uh, apparently is sitting in a Ukrainian museum somewhere now, um, <laughs> and, and we can't get it back. And, uh, and, um, and uh, yeah, and the third cup would be the, 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 amateur, the amateur cup. So, and Greg's right, in, in, even though you know, the soccer community has really in the last few years caught on to this beautiful thing that is the Open Cup, uh, that you know is a is a is a great competition. It's been around for over a hundred years. It gives a certain block of fans the kind of story they want, which is the underdog taking on uh, the the established teams, which is what makes it such a great thing mm-hmm. in England. But it's because of that, and this, and I think this goes to Greg's point, why, where USSF really needs to sort of step in and, and assert, you know, it is the big dog running things and say this is how it's going to be. I still think there's certainly an MLS is in there's a, there's a fear of committing completely to it because if an MLS team loses, then it sort of opens up that whole can of worms. Well, maybe you're not the best soccer in the country. Maybe we should open up the pyramid to let these other teams come in. North American soccer leagues never participated in the open cup. They always took a pass. In fact, one of the things I was coming through, uh, even as in 69, the American soccer league had to remind teams, Oh, you have to enter this competition. Um, so, um, so, but to go to Greg's main point, yes, the USSF needs to really like, really give this it's, it, a big push, establish a czar, someone who's going to make sure this is on teams front and center, uh, on their radar, someone who may go after MLS teams saying, look, no, if you're feeling a substandard team, you know, we understand you have league competition. We understand this isn't like Manchester United where you're three deep with the talent, but, you know, if you're running out, like Matt was saying, you, you sign some guys from the local league that weekend and, and giving them one-day contracts to play in the Cup, we're going to come after you. There's going to be, there's going to be a monetary penalty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really bump this up, and maybe that will um, you know, get the TV coverage, get the sponsorship, so it'll be a big event. Uh, as opposed to right now, it's, it's, it's a big like, Twitter event, but it, it's not really mainstream yet. Do you think, uh, yeah. do you think a, an, another Rochester Rhinos maybe would do that, that kind of run? I, I think we saw – I mean, Christos was an interesting story, but that only went so far a couple years – was that last year mm-hmm. or a couple years ago yeah. um, out of Baltimore uh, with former union man Levi Hopow on oh, the wow. team. Yes, <laughs> look, bringing it back. Um, and Cincinnati, or as we call it, Union Midwest. Right, um, right. They made that run, but even that, I think we saw kind of the, the expansion writing on the wall. So that was, yes, a lower league team, but not exactly that. And now we're in a situation where it's USL teams and MLS, so there's a little bit more, I guess, MLS has a better grasp on USL than, say, it would with you know the latest incarnation of NASL trying to usurp them through the Open Cup. Would it take a 
maybe a, an underdog story to kind of create that support? Do you think something like that would help raise the profile of this? Absolutely. I think, you know, as much as it pains me to say it, probably the best thing for the Open Cup would be if the Cosmos would manage to win it. <laughs> um, because uh, as opposed to getting beaten by amateur sides in the first round. Um, because, again, that brand, that name recognition it, it 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 drags in a whole other type of history, mm-hmm. and yeah, and, and it's 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 like wow, look at this! A quote minor league team is the national champion. What a great story! I mean, when the, when the Rhinos did it, no one was looking. Right. Um, uh, where people are paying attention to it, yeah, that would be great. It, but it's harder now. The NASL isn't around. USL. So many of those teams are or are, are MLS affiliates that you, you kind of lose track as to who's able to compete and who can't. Um, but I, I and and it, it's hard to say, you know. That's why I I picked the Cosmos for a reason. I mean, if um, if uh, if Pan FC won, oh yeah, it's great. A minor league team won, but uh, it's a it's a fluke. It'd be nice if a, if a team with a name brand, you know, right. if the Sounders before they jumped to MLS had won it once or twice, you know, name people recognized, uh, it, it would add more to the story. But. Um, uh, but with, but even without that, I mean, the fact that these teams are playing one another, the fact that here in Philadelphia, I was try, I, I'll, I'll I'll not lay on the cynicism real thick, but you know, I'm not entirely unconvinced that one reason why Philadelphia takes this competition so seriously is because it's it's a it's a team with a lower budget, realizing here's a good way to back into some money making competitions without having to extend ourselves over the course of a 34 game season. You know, maybe if people recognize it, look, if you win the Open Cup, you're in the Champions League. Right. So, I mean, Red Bull sort of figured that out late mm-hmm. in the game. Hey, this, here's how to do this. It's and, a, it's a great way to get it. to be able to fly coach to Honduras. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the name Wigan just Wigan just popped into my head the year that they got relegated. And it was what the FA Cup final that they made. Yeah, right. that that I think that tracks. Right, I don't. Right. I don't think that's cynicism. I think that's reality. Yeah. And it, it's funny you mentioned Seattle because I think uh, the fact that they came into the league and took it as seriously as they did in the first two three years they were uh, when they moved from USL to MLS and went out there and fielded strong sides and took it very seriously and won it. I think two years two years mm-hmm. running. I think that helped because they came in with such fanfare and you know Cascade you know the Cascadia region and all of that and that's kind of the where, you know, if you want to think about it, like 2.0, MLS 2.0 kind of kicked off in a way with their big crowds and all that. And they came in and he took that competition very seriously and, and, and won it. And, and, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. Whether that was marketing strategy mm-hmm. or whether that was just, here's how we're going to win. Yeah. I mean, you know, notwithstanding what the Golden Knights just did in the NFL, in the NHL, typically expansion teams are awful. Yeah. So, because it takes a while to catch up. So imagine if you, if you realize, hey, a way we can brand ourselves as a winner early on would be to take this competition seriously, particularly you know in '09 when Seattle yeah. comes in. They look around and they realize MLS teams are still kind of phoning it in. I mean, DC took it serious in the early years, and then and MLS teams tended to win. They always won, obviously, with, mm-hmm. with one exception, because they just had the depth. But but no one was really they weren't broadcasting it. They were playing it. They weren't playing in their regular stadiums. They were happy to go on the road. Um, Seattle realized, hey, here's one way we can brand ourselves as a winner right away, even though we're really we're, we're no threat to win MLS Cup. We just can't sustain this over the course of mm-hmm. 34 games. But hey, we're starting in the fourth round. We got to win what four games? We could probably do that. It's brilliant. 
Yeah. And 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 uh, and why more teams don't take advantage of that? I mean, you know, and Matt was mentioning DC United. Yeah, their their season was over, but they still had something to play for. Um, it, it, it's it's something I think fans as a rule are missing, and many teams as a rule are quite getting. And and where you know the, the, there's there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You can get in the Champions right. League, and then and then then maybe success will breed success. I mean, right. it helped jumpstart the sport in Kansas City. Uh, you know, Seattle certainly didn't hurt as a result. Right. Uh, and even though it was Canadian Cup, you see Toronto and Montreal doing what they're doing. That was that was possible through the cup play. And you can see, and uh, the great thing of sports, obviously, is rivalries. And you can see kind of rivalries bubble up and, and you know, realignment kind of put the kibosh on that. But you started to see a real rivalry, I thought, between KC and the Union. And a lot of that had to do with those couple cup games that yeah. were very contentious, mm-hmm. very physical you know, hard fought games. And I think, you know, there started to be that history and that's where, and you, you know, that's where that history comes from. And when you're playing these games with a lot on the line, and I think it goes back to my point uh, of having somebody kind of running the competition and getting it through these people's heads is you can get into CONCACAF champions league where you could, you know, you know, maybe get a Chivas in your stadium where you could get a big influx of Chivas fans, and it's a, you know, it's a good payday for you, and things like that. You know, it would, you know, so it, it, I would like to see the competition like raised up. I think that Sporting KC rivalry was also because of the Raymond Lee game, which I just wanted to bring up every once in a while. <laughs> wow, when when he that that was against SKC, right? I'm where he gave sure, up yeah. those. The, the, he came in, they were up two one, and then the game ended, and they were down three two. <laughs> I think it was the dying days of Raiz and Boley era. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, with the Open Cup, I, there was a stat that I think I dug up last year because the Union, when they lost to Red Bulls and then Red Bulls makes the run to the final, they hadn't beaten another MLS team in the competition. And in the competition proper, not the qualifying that they did in, I guess it was probably 9, 10, 11, 12, yeah. when they had those qualifying rounds. Yeah. They hadn't beaten MLS competition in that tournament in something like 15 years. Like, it was dating back to the Metro Stars days. And there's so many clubs that have not taken it seriously, which, and and now, unfortunately, one byproduct of the uh, prohibition of, you know, USL two, quote-unquote, two sides being in there is that you have more players at your disposal to add to your roster so that you don't have to necessarily mm-hmm. take it seriously. Um, but, you know, there's so many clubs that didn't take it seriously and i would hope to a certain degree it's it's to their detriment yeah. um a little bit and obviously it's you know it's usually midweek games and we know the battle that mls faces to fill the stadium on midweeks it's the reason why we don't have a winter schedule it's the reason why we don't have a uh you know a more it's the reason why the season is simultaneously too long and too short <laughs> and all those other kinds of things right. but it's a very imp- i think it's a really cool competition yeah. it is a good of all the things that the union have not done well in their existence. I think the Open Cup is one that they, they have done well, and they're going to have an opportunity to continue that. And yet fans haven't figured it out yet. I mean, they had a Saturday game last week, yeah. and I think um, my sources had like 2800 yeah. paid. With, just, with free parking and yeah. $15 tickets. Yeah. It should 10, be more. $10 out. tickets. And, yeah, in some cases. Yeah, and they, they, couldn't, they had trouble filling it for the finals. Yeah. I mean, just because even though in the soccer it was, community. It was a loud crowd. It was, For those yeah. finals, no, it was loud, but it still was only about 14, I think, the one. Was it, while I the soccer about, community yeah. appreciates the cup competition, I think yeah, there's a big part of the union fan base that like the union, but may not necessarily yeah. like soccer, and they don't quite get the importance right. 
Yeah, and, and I think uh, there's a lot of intuitive counter, you know, reprogramming that has to be done because it is very non-American. It's right. a, it's not a Native right. American thing, and, and it certainly confuses the heck out of my bosses when I explain to them that there's a game. So. And the, the, the funny thing is, and I w- I would say uh, Adam Silver, who's the yeah, that, that's I'm getting his name right, who's the NBA commissioner, yep. is uh, I was thinking he he really wants to make NBA a global sport. And he's embracing certain soccer kind of ideas. And he had floated an idea of having an almost an FA Cup style competition for the NBA. And they're mo- and he's they're moving. He want he talking about academies where they call them the development league or whatever. But so it, it's interesting that you have somebody one of the big four sports who kind of sees the value of certain things like that and talking the non-american ideas of sports and but he he sees the kind of the value of that so i find i find that interesting do you imagine that a, a national basketball cup yeah where you would play divisions naia teams would play <laughs> division three in the first round and then the second round you'd bring in division two right and the third round you'd bring in like low major fourth round would be high major and then in the fifth round you'd bring in nba against the survivors <laughs> that would be fascinating uh, that would that would confuse the living daylights out of people, but it would be interesting. It would be fascinating. Well, also, it would, although, also although, would be about a thousand teams. Right, right. But it's you know, dialing it way back, there'd be some historical precedent for that because they used to have these world professional basketball championships. You hear stories from time to time about the Harlem Globetrotters were a real team once, and they were beating the Minneapolis Lakers in these things. I think mm-hmm. the Tribune used to sponsor them in Chicago. So, yeah, in, in basketball's case, it would be interesting because in yeah. some way it would be getting back to its roots. And you do have it in Europe with, with Eurobasket and, the, yeah. you know, the various cups that they have. So, uh, obviously, on a different scale. Right, and right, the, right. Those are the elite of the elite, almost like the European Super League that, you know, they God, have been bloviating about <laughs> creating for years and probably will for the next decade right. talk about. Um, but, they, you know, always a possibility. Um, so I think we'll wrap it up uh, in a minute. But since I got you here, Steve, I'm going to ask you to put on your – other hat, your uh, lawyering hat. Uh, just real quick, where are we? I still think we're about a year out for CBA for MLS. Yeah, I've lost all track of time. They did, they, they <laughs> I thought a, you were going to ask about your parking ticket. Well, there was that. I mean, that's next. That's off they, mic, though. They did a five-year deal, mm-hmm. and that was so finalized in, what, 14? So, right, I think there's a year to so go. So, about a year. Right. Um, just kind of heading into that. What? What issues do you see unresolved from the last C- CBA? All of them. <laughs> uh, seriously, all yeah. of them. I mean, uh, the pay, even though even getting the uh, minimum salary doubled, really, is it, it's a pittance in the grand mm-hmm. scheme of things. They still have issues with first-class travel. Uh, free agency is still a myth. Um, you know, notwithstanding that, if you have 10 years of service and five with the same team, whatever— uh, and and I think and and the players have seen and Lord knows I'd be the I'm the first to 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 mock the players union on Twitter. They've seen with the introduction of Tam to go along with Gam and everything else uh, that that there was money on the table. They left money on the table. The owners were expecting more of a fight. The owners thought they would really get and and the players caved because again a handful of the older players wanted free agency and they were willing to accept what they got. That uh, nothing was resolved. And so so now it's a situation where not only do you have Still festering issues on the table, but you may also have a particularly angry union that felt mm-hmm. it was depantsed last time out, even if it was self-inflicted. That and now they're really going to have to make a stand and show how tough they are. Um, and then and then we can just rerun that thing I did for you guys all those years ago about the same issues. It's easy to say strike, mm-hmm. but it's difficult to sustain it, particularly in 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 a sport like soccer, where for a lot of these a lot of these guys who are in the union and would have to honor a picket line. 
for as much as American players are complaining about the minimum salary and things like that, for a lot of these players coming from you know Caribbean nations or what have you, it's more money than they're ever going to see. They're not going to strike. So, yeah, yeah basically, it should be interesting because it's going to be the same thing all over again. And I just remember from previously a few years ago, you, you felt like the union, the players' union, when I say union, the players' union actually had a bit of leverage at this point, at that point, and throwing that contract just with, you know, the TV money coming in and... NYSC and, was coming in, right, right. new owners that were more ambitious. Right. And and do they, do they still have... Did they fritter away all that leverage? I, I think a big part of it. They frittered away the leverage they might have had with the, with getting the owners to compete against themselves because you had the new breed of owner that wanted, wanted to be ambitious. You know, we, we, I remember we specifically were sitting right there. We're talking about the Mansours. The Mansours can't be happy that they're stuck with the salary cap as opposed to being able to bring in whoever they want. Um, uh, you know, they, I don't. I I don't know if if you have that rift anymore, where you could force the old the new owners to to compete against the old owners and split amongst mm-hmm. themselves the way it always the way it's always worked in say baseball. The players' union always wins in baseball because the owners can't get together. I think with the passage of time, whether NY whether like the the, the city group is now content with its role of being you know farm team for for uh, for Man City, uh, you know. Uh, blank. He's doing okay. He said, "Hey, within the salary cap, I'm spending my transfer fees. It's all good. I'm competitive. I'm not impacted by this." Yeah, I think uh, the the new owners have seen, "Hey, it works. You know, something mm-hmm. the single the single entity works, and we can still be competitive and an attractive product." But yeah, I think I, I think they've lost a real big opportunity. I wonder if in the next uh, I wonder if in the next cycle the issue of American players and playing opportunities is something that's going to come up because we look at all these devices and TAM and GAM and all that kind of stuff. They're overwhelmingly being used on foreign players. And there's a lot of tension that we're seeing now, I think, in the aftermath of you know the travesty in Trinidad is that we're looking at trying to get more opportunities for American-eligible players. We're at a point where green card legislation being what it is, the international spots is really a farce in that you're, you know, you're one letter to a congressman from from making an international essentially an American. I wonder if that's a, a flashpoint that you, that you see building at all. Cause I would assume that, you know, union leadership is overwhelmingly American or at least players that have been here for a while. Right. But I mean, I think in that case, their hands are completely tied by American employment law. I mean, uh, it's amazing, I guess, because no one was watching because who cared that, you know, the, the North American soccer league was able to have its North Americans rule and green card guys were included but we excluded Mexicans. They weren't North American for the purpose of that calculation. It was all Canadian and, and United States, and nobody cared. Well, people are paying attention now. So I don't know if the Players Union is going to be able to do anything to Americanize the game by way of quotas. Uh, what their approach would be, if, if, if I were in their shoes, would be, look, you know, the, the money's being spent overwhelmingly on foreign players because foreign players are willing to come here and play for this kind of money, you know, and there's also probably an inherent bias. I, the, the American is willing to play for 60000 and the guy from, say, Trinidad and Tobago is willing to pay for 60000 You still have that bias that Americans don't really play soccer yet, even among the people making these decisions. I'm going to opt for the guy from TNT every time, thinking I'm getting more bang for my buck. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you, want of a, for want of a better way to characterize it, legislate that out of existence by way of the CBA without running afoul of other laws. So maybe the thing is, look, you just gotta you gotta put more money on the table. American players, the good American players, the, the, who you, who you need to be the base, not so much the stars, because you pay the stars, they'll come play. But 
the foundation players. Yeah. You need to make everyone else better who are going off to Scandinavia now. You got to pay them more. Raise the cap. You put money on, more money on the table. That's how you have to approach that. It, that was kind of the uh, point I wanted to make. And I remember talking to JP Del Camera a while ago about this that, you know, the last CBA raised the floor or the minimum. And the top is the top. The top seems to be keeping keep growing. That middle swath, though, that middle class MLS player, there's no salary growth there. No, and because, because the cap didn't grow. You know, right. As you, you know, the, the the target, the the designated players were outside the cap, and we raised the minimum. But you know, the guys you need to to provide service to your stars, you, mm-hmm. your, and, and who you like, who like, who you would like to be American. Right. There was no salary growth there at all. That's absolutely correct. I think we'll wrap it up on that. Um, Steve, I want to thank you for your insight on multiple subjects as always. Uh, Matt, uh, thank you for coming up and sitting in the co-host seat. In the Mike Cervetti memorial chair. One day we'll find where Mike is and, you know, I don't know if he's gone completely native in Geneva or in uh, France. We're going to have to stake out all the waterfalls (laughs) in France. It's a big job, but I'm willing to do it. (laughs) So, uh, I want to thank everybody for listening and we will check you out next week.